everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. And after a flurry of activity in Australia for the recent UCI Road and Time Trial World Championships, we are back in Colorado for a group show. Joining us here today is our very busy senior tech editor, Dave Rome. Welcome back, Dave. Hello. Thank you. Not in Colorado. Not You're not in Colorado, but you're back in Sydney. <laughs> yes. And sitting next to me here at the Boulder Group Pedo is ace pro mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. Sitting this episode out is Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief Kaylee Fretz, who I believe is conveniently lost, quote-unquote, somewhere over the Pacific, along with his luggage, otherwise known as taking an impromptu and unofficial holiday in Hawaii, perhaps. We'll see if Kaylee comes back with a tan. Uh, We have a great show in store for you, as always, though. As promised in an earlier episode, we'll discuss our wish list for fully internal cable routing. We'll debate the pros and cons of dropper and suspension seat posts for gravel bikes, And we'll chat about the prospect of virtual reality indoor cycling. And as usual, we will wrap up the show with a round of Ask a Mechanic. So let's get started. Okay, it's pretty clear at this point that as much as it often bugs us, fully internal cable routing on drop bar bikes is not going away anytime soon. And if anything, it's expanding to mountain bikes, unfortunately. Um, But instead of just complaining about how we don't like it all the time, one of our listeners suggested not too long ago that we offer up our thoughts on how we would do fully internal cable routing. And I'm guessing we're going to be on the same page here among the three of us. So it is time to share our thoughts on this. Dave, do you want to go first? How would you do internal cable routing if you were designing a frame? Uh, I don't know if I would, but... um... Uh, I think for me, probably the best the best example I've personally used to date is from uh, Aurum, which is that uh, Alberto Contador and um, even Basso cycling brand. Uh, they've, they don't have many models out, but their original model, the the magma, um, basically had the the cables entering just below the top headset bearing. So there's like a mouth in the in the front of the head tube and the the brake hoses or or the gear wires, whatever you want to use, um, are external up until they enter the front of the head tube. So you still get pretty like a very narrow uh, frontal profile, very clean look, but it's um but yeah, I mean you're basically free to have uh yeah, regular stem, regular handlebar, whatever, whatever you want. Um and you just see the hoses just a few centimeters visible, and then you can still um, access that top headset bearing without having to to disconnect anything. Um, they still do capture the lower headset bearing because obviously that brake hose, uh, the front brake hose, is uh, going to capture the the lower headset bearing. But I mean, at that point, if you can take out the top headset bearing, you can kind of very easily access the lower headset bearing to at least grease it and keep it maintained and keep it well sealed. So that's that to me is probably where. I'd like to see more go, and I think it's it was a, a pretty nice little uh, iteration. Um, the only issue I'd say with it is there is uh, the potential for a little bit of brake hose rubbing on the steer, which still needs to be solved for. But I think that's in the grand scheme of things, I think that's actually can be quite easily solved for with a sleeve or similar. Hmm. Zach, how would you do it? How would I do it? I mean, pretty similar to Dave, I would say. Yeah, in an ideal world, it wouldn't go through the headset brain, but most of them do. Um, and I think if we're going to do that, there are ways to do it that are better than others. Um, I would say like specialized BMC, kind of how they do it, comes through the headset brain, but then runs along the bottom of their stem, not through the stem. And then you can use their handlebars or you can use whatever normal handlebars you want to use. Um, and it's super clean, 
hoses are tidy along the bottom of the stem, kind of like kind of bolted in place or with a cover. Um, but it's easy. You can you can take the handlebars off to travel. You can switch stem links and do like multiple things without having to redo all the brake hoses <laughs> without having to take apart the entire front end of the bike. Yeah, exactly. And I think so. James and I were talking about this a little bit before too. But so one of my biggest pet peeves is on some of some of the companies they like try and put this marketing spin and like look how easy our our handlebars and stem and stuff is to to adjust. So they have these split headset spacers that you could remove a spacer to drop the stem down if you wanted to play with your position. But the way they've designed the stem, you can't then put a spacer on top of the stem. So in order to remove a headset spacer, you have to cut the steer tube, which a lot of times still involves undoing the brake hoses. Um, so that to me is always like the biggest pet peeve of, did you guys really think about this, how you've done things? And I don't think that they did. Yeah, that was something I praised the new, because uh, I just finished reviewing the Factor Ostro Gravel, which is a new aero gravel bike. And that's something I praised them for is that they'd actually thought about that. So it's it's a full aero front end, but they you can put a round spacer on top while you dial in your fit. So you don't have to cut yep. the steerer. Um, and it's it it's when you're testing bikes, it, it stands out very quickly when that's an issue. Um, yeah, and, and I think... Well, I think like it'd be interesting. I mean, this isn't really like a wish list, but it'd be interesting to talk to bike fitters kind of around and like how many people are in terrible positions on their road bikes nowadays because switching stems or handlebars or whatever is so much more of a pain. Like it used to, you buy a bike and you're like, oh, let's ride around or do a bike fit and we're going to give you a stem with a different angle or a different length or we need narrower bars. And now it's like, well, this is what it is and we're too busy to like, spend the four hours to swap out your cockpit. So here's your bike. Like it'd be interesting to get that perspective of how many bike fitters people are coming in and just like have very not optimal positions. I feel like that sounds like a prime suggestion for a segment on an upcoming show. Deep dive. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it sounds like the three of us are on the same page for a lot of the stuff here because one thing that it's important to note is, uh, I guess, the difference between concealed and fully internal routing because a lot of what we're talking about is um like kind of concealed but not fully internal um in the sense that the lines are kind of tucked away and kind of held out of the open air like what a lot of fully internal setups are trying to do but because the lines are not actually running through the middle of any cockpit components then it's a lot easier to change those components if you have to like if you're if your brake lines are not running through the middle of the stem and through the middle of the handlebar um then it makes it a lot easier to change either of those things. Um, I've got just sort of a bit of a bit of a wish list here because one, I should say, it does seem like this is getting better because what you were talking about earlier, Zach, with um, like Specialized and BMC, a couple of other companies that are kind of on this track now, like Orbea, Trek, Giant, there's definitely a growing list. There are definitely a growing list of companies who are no longer or at least moving away from fully internal hose routing. Um, like Trek, I think, is pretty unique uh, in the sense that, granted, this one piece setup has not been recalled, but um, the um, that a ALS is it the ALS RSL? I think that that one piece cockpit that that uh, that they were running on the higher end Amandas, um, that was a fully kind of hidden hose setup, but the the lines didn't run through the cockpit. So even though it was a one piece carbon setup, you could still swap it pretty easily without having to do a whole bunch of surgery. And um, like on that bike in particular, you can. You can use that one piece setup, or you can use a normal handlebar and stem. 
And like that, that flexibility I think is, is key to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually is, used one of those cockpits on my seven until it was recalled. Yeah. The, v, um, the VRC, ALS VRC. Um, yeah, it's, it's exactly, yeah. And that's exactly what they've done with the recall, right? They've, they've kept people rolling with a regular handlebar and stem while they get, uh, get the handlebar, the one piece handlebar fixed up. So just shows that, yeah, it is a perfectly normal front end in that sense. All right, so that that is definitely something that we all have on our wish list for, uh, I guess, hidden cabling, uh, is to have them not run through the middle of cockpit components. Um, seems like we're all on the same page about ideally not having the lines run through the middle of the headset bearings. Um, another brand that that I feel like does a at least a decent job conceptually of that, I think, is Cannondale. Um, granted, their system certainly wasn't perfect, uh, I guess, particularly in the way they did the, the steerer stop, but on the System 6... Um, in particular, Super Six is it the Super Six come out of the front of the yeah, head yeah. tube? Oh, sorry, yeah. This, um, so they, they basically had like a head tube within a head tube where you had the lines coming in through an opening in front of the steer tube, and then that steer tube was basically completely sheltered by like a second head tube inside, um, so that those lines could run into the frame, but then there was no chance of the steer tube running on it. It wasn't necessarily the absolute cleanest setup, but functionally, I think it was a pretty good way to go. Uh, and that also didn't go through the upper headset bearing, didn't rub on anything. It was fairly easy to work on. Um, so I feel like that is a pretty good feature to have that I wish would be a little bit, you know, kind of like more widespread or better thought out. Um, another thing I feel like uh, all of us have discussed here, it's it would be nice if a lot of those systems incorporated a little bit more slack in the brake lines so that you had more room for adjustment if someone needed to go higher or wider or longer stem or whatever, because for a lot of these systems, the, the tolerances are so tight. Um, like I've had a couple of test bikes come through where if I switched to a stem that was even 20 millimeters longer than stock, I couldn't do it without changing the brake hose. And I think too, like that flexibility, even not even for switching stem links, but like to be able to take your handlebar off and rotate it around to travel with the bike, like and have enough brake hose to allow that to happen. Because now pretty much everyone with one of these bikes has to use, like, I mean, I have one right here. It's the Sycon soft case. And it's like, it works because you just drop the bike in. But almost every one of them that I've unpacked, like, the hoods are fully smashed in and, like, the bikes aren't well protected. So I think that if you could rotate the handlebars and put it in an actual proper bike case, then I think that would be nice. Uh, how does Raul Lucia describe that? Less than ideal? Yes. <laughs> Less than ideal. Uh, and then I guess the other thing that... All three of us, I think, are in agreement that we would want for a, a hidden cabling setup is, if not better sealing for headset bearings, uh, then we're starting to see a few more bikes, particularly the high end, come with um, bearings like the Ceramic Speed SLT, where they use a solid, solid lubricant that's a little bit more impervious to, to corrosion. Um, because if you're going to have a setup where the bearings are really, really hard to access, it would be really nice if companies at least put in some more effort to make it so that you didn't have to access those bearings more regularly. Yeah, I think it's important to note that even with those SLT bearings, you're still going to want to uh, keep the the seats of the bearings greased. And that's something that yep. the bike companies themselves aren't being truly transparent about. Like, um, factor kind of suggested to me that it's like, it's almost set and forget once you use those bearings. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you still need to be cleaning out the the external elements of the bearing and and keeping them sealed with grease. So yeah, something to consider. Like 
seemingly there would be an easy way to put a rubber seal in between things. Well, but. that's something, Dave, that you and I have talked about a whole, a whole bunch in the past. I know mm. that you've actually been making note of bikes that have come in for review, which ones have had supplemental seals on the lower bearings and which ones haven't. And it's been virtually every single one, I think, yeah, that does I kind not of, have supplemental seals down there, I right? I pretty much stopped counting because if it's got an integrated crown race on the fork steerer, then chances are it doesn't have a additional external seal. So, yeah, like... Like Cane Creek for their headsets, if you use their crown race, it has like a yeah. a molded in little extra lip seal, which would be lovely to have that on road bicycles with integrated cables. Yeah, I guess it'd be, it be I guess one thing is I've never I've never asked this question to a frame designer why they don't put those seals in. I wonder if they're afraid of grit getting in there and like wearing down the carbon or something. But um because one thing with those Cane Creek headsets, one thing with those Cane Creek headsets in particular, with that lower seal that that's integrated into the into the crown race, that that little silicone rubber lip uh, kind of rotates on the I think the outer race of the bearing itself, so it wouldn't actually rub on the frame. Although it seems like you should be able to do something like that with a an integrated setup too, I guess. But you'd have to have some sort of a separate piece, right? I mean, I'd say too part of the problem is most of these bikes are all carbon so the like head tube down tube top tube junction is all fully open and usually there's like some sort of holes near the bottom bracket and particularly on gravel bikes you get lots of dirt and grit in your bike and then you go to hang your bike up in the garage and then all that dirt and grit from the bottom bracket holes goes into the head tube and just stays there forever just stays there so then you drop the fork out eventually and it's just absolutely disgusting and sand and grit and gravel and just not great we're like traditionally these headsets, the King Creek ones would be on a mountain bike where the head tube is welded on or like more sealed from the down tubes. Yeah. And then you don't have that issue. Mm. Well, I guess that's another issue all, all, uh, all in and of itself. But I guess to recap our wish list for fully hidden cable routing. So yeah, not running the lines through the handlebar stem. Um, ideally not running through the upper headset bearing. Ideally, not rub, not rubbing on the steer tube, uh, and ideally offering some sort of reasonable access to the upper and lower headset bearings. So even if you don't have to replace them, you can at least keep them greased up and clean. Yes, please. I'd say another good one that's more of an issue on like TT bikes, but if you like, basically they're like one bolt holds it all together. Like you can't like I'm, the only road bike that comes to mind that does this is the new Allied one, which basically like you can't adjust either the handlebar or the steer tube without taking it all apart and it all kind of falls apart when you take the one thing apart like where you should normally be able to raise and lower a stem without also having your handlebar angle be thrown off mm, yep that's a good one and actually all along those same lines um the the latest canyon cockpit that they use on the air road and the ultimate uh not only is that not only is it a little bit tricky in this well they say it's easier to raise and lower the the bar height because you don't need to do a whole bunch of like extra work necessarily. But um, what you were saying earlier with that one bolt, you can't do it on the road because there's a separate tool that's required to preload the bearing that's not built into the top of the stem like it normally would be. So if you need to do an adjustment out on the road or even just tighten something up, you're kind of SOL. All right, right, so you can add that to our list too. So basically easy to live with. Is what we want. Basically make it mechanic approved. Is that what we're saying? I think so. Okay. If nine out of 10 mechanics say that your system is not very good, then it maybe might be time to hit the drawing board again. Does that seem fair? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. And and you should be able right. to preload your headset with a general multi tool. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That doesn't seem like it, you know that that seems like a pretty reasonable list to me. One would think, but alas. Well, as we said, it is getting better. So maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel, at least just a little bit. Like, I guess you talked about your favorites. Are we allowed to ask what your least favorites are? Oh, I guess it wouldn't really be nerd alert if we didn't complain a little bit. So which ones do we really, really dislike? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the FSA ACR system, which is probably like the most turnkey option in the market. So it's the one... Which is how it was designed. Yeah, correct. It was designed for for large bicycle manufacturers to just adopt and put straight into their bikes. Um, but from what the ones I've used, at least with like the Vision or the FSA front handlebar assembly, is if you take uh, one of the aerospaces, split spaces out from underneath the stem, it's exactly what Zach said, where you then can't put it on top and you basically need to cut the steerer. Uh, so yeah, it, it allows a little bit of slack. I think there's about, you can you can build it up to have about five millimeters of of spare room in the system where you can then take out a spacer and still not have to put a spacer on top but it's yeah that's that one strikes me as uh being particularly annoying because it's it's kind of guilty of our of being the opposite of all of our things on our wish list uh i would have to put on my list of terrible setups any front end that has the lines going through the handlebar mm-hmm. and stem particularly a lot of the fully one piece carbon setups yeah burn all of them like douse them in gasoline and burn them like the episode. They're so arrow they're so arrow <laughs> yes they are arrow and and again i know that we hear we hear about this a lot we cl- we complain about this a lot i know that a lot of these bikes once they are set up people really appreciate how clean they are they're mm-hmm. yes they're arrow and whatever they look nice but as soon as one of those bikes requires anything just keep in mind that as nice as those bikes look and as sleek and as clean and whatever they are be prepared to have a pretty hefty shop bill whenever you have to do anything up front. Yeah. I, I think I think it is I'm not gonna completely disagree with that, but I think it's important to note that there are significant trade-offs, but there are also some benefits to those one piece handlebars, right? Like so the weight potentially can be lighter, but more importantly what I've sure. found is those one piece yep. handlebars can actually be designed to be more comfortable because they can kind of engineer yes, and a bit more flex. So that's a nice point. The downside is exactly what you mentioned. I'm not necessarily opposed to the whole one-piece setup. Yeah. I'm opposed to having one-piece setup where everything has to run through because we have now seen that it is certainly possible to run a one-piece carbon setup mm. that gives you all of those benefits that doesn't require you to run the lines internally. I feel like I don't even mind the one-piece, like the full one-piece thing. Because like, usually that's on the the highest of the highest-end models, yep. right? Yep. yep. Like That's the premium spaceship rocket bike like do all of it, right? Why not? Like that person is probably going to be able to afford whatever the service bill is. And maybe yeah. like on my point of view, it's a bit of a pain, but it is what it is. But like, I think doing that kind of pain of a setup on the like middle of the road, road bikes for just your average rider, they don't need that. No. And they don't want to pay that extra to have it worked on. Yeah. But yep. that would not be my least favorite. Yeah. And extending that point, like the bike industry just needs to stop pushing this this visual on bikes that have uh, mechanical gearing or mechanical brakes. Um, I think those bikes need to stay with external for now. All right. Well, I think we should go ahead and move on from this. This horse is very, very dead. But you asked for our thoughts on how we would design our ideal internal cable riding setup or I guess hidden cable riding setup. 
And those are our thoughts. So we'll see if the bike industry follows suit because as we all well know at this point, the bike industry does exactly what we ask of them. So no, not really, but hopefully it gets better. We'll see. Before we completely move on, I had to help someone so I didn't get to say my least favorite. Oh, oh, okay. The Allied Echo is the worst. Worst oh, over-engineered, with that, with that absolutely setup. terrible throw-in-the-garbage cockpit. Because mm. it runs through the stem through the and stem. into the back of the handlebar. Mm-hmm. And it has this big plate mm-hmm. that connects everything by the, like, it all falls apart if you undo it. Mm-hmm. And it runs through the steer and comes out the back of the steer for the rear brake hose, mm-hmm. which is really bad. So it doesn't rub on the outside of the steer, but it, like, kinks it when you install it. And it uses this little, like, you have to use, like, a big cone wrench to adjust the headset preload. Yep. It's And it's all painted, mm-hmm. so it all chips. Mm-hmm. It's the, really bad. The funny thing about that frame is Allied does offer an external setup yeah, on that frame. Yeah, which is fine. The frame's fine. That they never the, talk, that the they don't stem, really talk about. Absolutely horrendous. Like, I think maybe in CAD it looked cool. But it's just so over-engineered and in the real world world is just so terrible. But Zach, they they contracted Abbey Bike Tools to custom make the tools in order to repair that. <laughs> so at least they did that right. part, right? Like they if did. you're gonna but have the problem proprietary with that is, tools, you know, like the problem with this is so you expensive. get the tool that comes with your bike, but then you take your bike to the bike shop to get fixed yeah. and the tool stays home, and then the bike shop doesn't have this proprietary tool. Yeah. The bike shop needs to cool. get get that tool. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that works for the one stem out of all of the thousands of bikes out there. Yeah. But you know, Dave naturally has three of them. Yeah, no, no, only only one of those for the Allied bikes. Oh, okay. But okay. I've, even though one. I've never worked on an Allied on that particular <laughs> Allied bike, but uh, I do have the tool. So anyway, but so it's in the instructions too. They like so because it's all painted. They say to put like masking or electrical tape on the sides of the tool. Great, so you, that you don't chip the stem. But then Perfect. because Abby makes their tools so well. There's no room yes, to put the tool where right. the tool needs to go with the tape. Yes. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's too precise. Mm. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. Horse is really, really now beaten and dead. Yeah. I hope they're listening and just get rid of that design. Mm. But Sorry, Allied. It's a nice bike otherwise, though. It is. All right. Anyway, like I said, you asked for our thoughts on this topic, and there they are. So We'll see, we'll see where it goes from here. But yeah, like I said, thankfully, it is, it is getting better slowly. All right. Well, moving on to a slightly less contentious topic, maybe. Um, so I've been posting a few things recently on my personal Instagram account about dropper and suspension seat posts for gravel bikes. And I would say the responses from people that I've gotten uh, in reply have been pretty interesting uh, and surprisingly polarizing because it seems like people either have been all in on one or the other, or they basically just want to kill them with fire. Um, now, for sure, the viewpoints on this will depend a lot of where you're riding and your particular style of gravel riding. Um, I mean, I know how things are here in Colorado, but Dave, I'm curious how things look on this front in Australia. So what are you seeing where you are? Uh, I can't say I've seen... I definitely see some gravel bikes with dropper posts, but I can't say I've seen a, a huge amount personally with, with suspension seat posts. Um, they exist, but... Uh, I'm also not riding in big gravel groups too often. So, yeah, I I have no first-hand experience on that. Um, I assume they're selling, though, given how many brands are now offering them. It's uh, quite quite for the sure, marketplace. For sure. Yeah, what are you seeing, James? Uh, well, um, 
like you, I don't really do a whole lot of group gravel riding. Um, most of my rides are pretty solo, but I do see a lot of people out there riding, and I do certainly hear from a lot of other people who are just not in this area. Um, it, it's really interesting because it does seem to be extremely region-specific um, and almost, I would almost argue demographic-specific because uh, I will say, first of all, that the suspension seat posts that I've used for gravel bikes do work, and most of them actually work quite well, um, at least as far as adding quite a lot of comfort, even if you're running like a 40, 45 mil tire. Um, it does make the bike more comfortable. I would argue that in a lot of situations, you can go faster because you can just stay seated and kind of keep putting on power um, to the point where I don't really care too much about that little bit of extra weight. Um, and I'm not particularly heavy and my position is fairly far forward anyway, so I don't really have much of an issue as far as the seat posts bobbing a whole lot. Um, but of course there are a lot of people who have been like, if you're going to run a suspension seat post on your, on your, if you're going to run a suspension seat post on your gravel bike, why don't you just ride a mountain bike? So as far as the, the, the suspension seat post goes, that that's where, that's where people seem to be drawing that line. And, uh, unfortunately people can't see this, but Zach just raised his hand because I believe that he is in this camp. See, I actually very much disagree with that. What do you, how, how so Dave, what do you think? Well, I just, I think if you look at road bikes and how many people are now uh, accepting that a more comfortable road bike isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you look at, say, the Canyon Ultimate, which has that um, that leaf spring, that split seat post, which is actually basically a suspension seat post. It is, it's a bobby one. Um, and you look at the old Roubaix, Specialized Roubaix with the Cobble Gobbler. Um, these are not too far off from what a modern suspension seat post does on gravel where without doubt it has more benefit on gravel than it does on the road um so i i yeah i i don't i think it still very much can be a gravel product designed for like general gravel riding without getting into the realm of like stupid underbiking where a mountain bike is better i mean i would i understand it but i would rather see ones like the canyon seat post or companies with their proprietary shapes, he posts anyways, like build more flex into the carbon with that rather than having this Did like I? big mechanical clunky thing on the top of your seat post. That's what I would, if, if you're going to run a suspension seat post, like I would rather just see more comfort built into it that way. But I also think like you're running a 40 mil tire, you can put inserts in, you can run 20 PSI. Do you need more comfort via the seat post? But I guess that's the thing that I always think about because um, I think I've mentioned before, I, do, I mean, I do a lot of fat biking in the winter and uh, there have been times when I have run a suspension fork on my fat bike. And actually years ago, I actually used to run a full suspension fat bike. And a lot of times people comment that, you know, what do you need suspension for on a fat bike? You've got four inches of suspension in your tires. Um, but I would, I would counter that by saying that your tires really are meant to do kind of one thing primarily, and that's to kind of keep a contact patch on the ground and you know have traction and drive and brake and that sort of thing. Um, and while it can provide some suspension, it's not it's not always necessarily what it's ideally good at. Like it can, it can provide some, um, but I don't always want to tune my tire pressure or my tire size specifically for the purpose of suspension. Um, and it's I guess not suspension, but it's just like like built in comfort. It, like that's it, why it, we don't run 120 psi on our road tires. It, it is, but um, but there is. There, there is, you know, there, there's a tipping point, right? Because on my, on my gravel bike, for example, I'm typically running, I think I'm running like 40 mil tires for the most part. And even with inserts, I don't necessarily want to run them too soft because depending on the tire, it can feel pretty sluggish. 
Um, so if I were to really get the comfort that I want, then have to drop the pressure where I would need to, to, to get there, then it would start to feel kind of slow. Whereas I can run my tires the way I want to for traction and rolling resistance and that sort of thing and have, and kind of nail that sweet spot there. And then I could have a separate thing, provide the comfort aspect that doesn't affect my tire performance. And for a lot of situations that seems to me to be a good way to go. And like, that's, that's kind of where I've ended up. Um, like I just reviewed that. Redshift Shockstop Pro seat post uh, just a couple of days ago on the site. And I like the idea of it. That one in particular is not, maybe not my favorite. Um, I've really been quite happy with the, with the Cane Creek setup. It's light. It's simple. It works. I mean, it maybe moves a little bit more than I want to sometimes, but for the most part, it works quite well. It's pretty light. Um, and like the whole clunkiness aspect, I, I actually don't really find it very clunky. Um, like I think it's, pretty well done like it doesn't seem like it's like it doesn't make any noise and doesn't move around too much or like certainly not a whole lot more than i wanted to but i don't know i feel like zach zach i'm looking at your gravel bike right now oh that's not that's old one that's your that's your old one is that why it's all clean yeah oh wow do you want to buy it no <laughs> it's about it's about six sizes too too tall for me yep <laughs> <laughs> but i dare say Zach, I may have a couple of extra suspension seat posts for you right now. My current gravel bike has a proprietary shaped seat post. <sighs> what is it? Cannondale. Gah. I know. I'll figure out something for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll figure out something. So, um, but I, I would say I'm way more okay with suspension seat posts than dropper seat posts on gravel bikes. Fair enough. Okay. Well, moving on then. Dave, what are your thoughts on dropper seat posts for gravel? Because I feel like that. Again, it's the sort of thing where it, it, it's just so polarizing for people because a lot of the responses I got from from people who follow me are people were like, I absolutely love it, would never go back. And there, there are other people who are like, they are the dumbest things in the world. Like, there didn't really seem to be a whole lot of middle ground. And, and I think it depends on how you ride and where you ride your gravel bike. I think if you are Definitely. under bike, sorry, if you're using a gravel bike as like a glorified road bike and you're sticking to dirt roads and gravel roads that you could drive the family car down then a dropper seat post is stupid uh Agreed. but if you're under biking on that bike and you're doing like you're trying to do everything from road all the way through to like single track then the dropper post has the same benefit on a gravel bike that it does on a mountain bike and if anything it has more of a benefit because it lets you overcome the geometry limitations or helps you to yeah, it, it somewhat overcomes the geometry limitations. So I think about the the most I've liked to drop a post on a gravel bike, and that was with um I'm trying to remember the name. I think it was called the Marin Headlands from memory. It was a bike I, I reviewed a carbon gravel bike. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the head angle on that was actually really steep and kind of awkward feeling. It kind of felt like you're trying to be it was trying to pitch you over the handlebars. But then they'd put a dropper post on it, and then with this drop with the seat down, you kind of were able to yeah um solve for the feeling of going over the handlebars uh so yeah i think there are applications where droppers make sense um but yeah it it very much is a individual case-by-case thing and i also think that at least for now i don't think that droppers necessarily belong on gravel bikes from a an oe point of view like from a stock um yeah stock off the off the bike shop point of view i think i think it's still too much of a, a fringe case to to justify building into a bike's cost like that cool. so i would start by saying i love dropper seat posts 
on mountain bikes. Like I, I strongly dislike hiking, but I would rather go for a hike than ride a mountain bike with a rigid seat post. I, I think I'm with you on that one. Like, like it's to the point where I almost can't ride a like, mountain bike without a dropper. I love dropper posts on mountain bikes, whether it's XC bikes or enduro bikes. Like I have dropper posts on all my mountain bikes, but on the gravel bike, I just don't understand it. It's like there are case scenarios where it makes sense, but those scenarios where it makes sense, it also makes sense to ride a mountain bike. And I think like it's similar. We were talking about the last show that we did. We were talking about the BMC, their new like racing gravel bike or whatever. Mm-hmm. It is. That Caius. Like that's the bike that most people need because what most people are doing is just going riding dirt roads and stuff. Like there's maybe this idea of having this like big adventure bike and you're going to go ride your gravel bike on single track and like rough roads and whatever. But like in reality, most people aren't doing that. So I think maybe some people it makes sense, but like, I don't know. I think so few people actually need the dropper seat posts. And then I've had people tell me too, like, oh, I use the dropper seat post on my gravel bike when I'm doing road distance, which even more blows my mind. Like that's not how you (laughs) handle a bicycle going down a road on a road descent. Like that's a Maharic. Yeah. He's using that to super tuck, not to go around corners faster. Like he was using it purely in a, let's sit on my top tube without breaking the rules. Like he wasn't using it to get around the corner faster. Like on a road with its twisty on a downhill, you are in the saddle and using the saddle and your pressure like of your body on the saddle to turn the bicycle. Like if you see someone descending on the road, standing up, going around corners, like they don't know how to ride a bicycle very well. well. I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh, you, it's quite, a, it's quite a sight. Huh. And occasionally you even see it in pro bike races and you're like, usually it's people that you're like, oh, that person's really sketchy and doesn't really know how to go downhill. But, and then you see them go around a corner and you're like, oh, I see. Hmm. But normally wait, a had people high tell me correlation that. between people that do that and, and people that are very good on Zwift. Exactly. But like, <laughs> oh, this, I've had people tell me that's why where they use dropper seat posts on their gravel bike is on road descents because you drop the saddle and then you can corner faster. But I don't, I just don't see it. It's, it blows my mind. Well, is it the sort of situation where, you know, we've often talked about how this thing that we universally, this thing that we universally describe as gravel riding, I mean, it does encompass a very wide spectrum of riding types and terrain types. Is it the sort of thing where, like, can we agree that dropper posts probably make sense for maybe the more extreme end of gravel riding? For sure, where- but I also think, like, that's the whole point of riding a gravel bike on single track is, like, it's comical. It's stupid. It shouldn't work. You're like bouncing around this sketchy trail. But it makes easier trails. It makes it makes trails that would otherwise be maybe kind of boring with a cross country bike. Yeah, fun. it makes it fun. And you're like, like I ride my gravel bike on single track because it's fun. It makes me laugh, and it like is stupid, but it's fun. <laughs> but like, if you put start turning it into a mountain bike, you have a flat bar gravel bike with a dropper post. Like you're no longer underbiking. You're just having a worse mountain bike. Right. Kind of like that specialized Diverge Evo that we tested at field testing, I guess, last year, was it? Like, that's, that's to me, at least, I mean, everyone has a different opinion, but to me, the whole underbiking thing is like, it sucks, which is what makes it fun, right? It's a pretty good description for it. Yeah, sure. It's like riding an XC bike <laughs> on, like, rowdy enduro trails. Like, it's terrifying and sketchy, but... I believe that's called down country, Zach. I'm sorry, down country. <laughs> but it's like the same concept. Like, it's stupid, but that's what in and of itself makes it fun. So I feel like the moment you start turning your gravel bike into a mountain bike, it's less stupid, therefore not as much fun. Hmm. Interesting. 
Dave, do you ever cons- do you ever foresee a situation where you would be running a dropper post on your gravel bike? Uh, yes, currently testing a few. So I do foresee <laughs> such a situation. <laughs> okay, right um, then. Yeah, uh, I, I think there is a market for them and uh, I think it's nice to have choice and options. And I like the fact that with one by shifting, for example, you can now, in, in many situations, like with, with GRX, if you have that left-hand lever, which controls the dropper, then it's actually quite a nice, easy-to-use system. Um, I'm less yes, agreed. I'm less in love with the ones that have like the 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 lever just attached to the center of the handlebar, where like you'd normally run your light. Um, that makes it less convenient. Yeah, or even the ones that have these levers the drops that, that don't yeah, actually like are the least ergonomic things possible. Yeah, the yeah. ones that mount like right below your hoods that just are just super hard to work on. Yeah, or super hard to to actuate when you're riding. Yeah. Yeah, um, not a big fan of those. So I think that it's yeah. If you want to run a dropper, go for it. Like I have no problem with that. But I think I agree with Dave. Like they shouldn't come stock from the bike companies like this. I think if the bike had extra cable ports and around seat posts that allowed yeah. you to put a dropper if you wanted, yeah. then great. But I don't it's not like it's such a small percentage of people that actually would utilize it and that need it. Yeah. But I don't think it should come stock. Yeah. And going back to that, like that Marin example I said, which had a dropper as stock and it helped the bike descend. If that bike had better geometry, then I wouldn't have wanted the dropper on that bike. So it's um yeah, I think I think it's it's a tricky one. But yeah, I have certainly used a gravel bike in situations where a dropper is fantastic. Um so I'm not ruling it out. And in fact, um that's why I'm kind of testing a few, is that I actually think there is a a space in the market for them. All right. Well, Dave, maybe you and I should should compare ride notes on this one because I'm finishing up a bike right now that also included a dropper post with its stock. So stay tuned. For me, it's like if I was riding that trail that whatever you need a dropper, like I would like if I had to have a dropper on my gravel bike to ride it, I would rather just ride my hardtail. So Zach, one I guess one thing also that it's probably important to remember about gravel riding in general is there are often times when there's maybe just like one section that might be a little bit sketchy. And then the rest of the ride is maybe like pretty tame gravel. So is stuff. it worth carrying around the weight of a dropper for well, yeah, all of it, your bike riding? It's always that yeah, it's always that section. cost benefit analysis that people kind of have to do with their equipment, right? Like there's this one ride that we do, well, that I regularly do around here. Zach, I'm sure you've done this, like that kind of like chunky rocky climb that goes up behind Dakota Ridge here on the north side of town and then drops down underneath the highway. Oh yeah. Do it on my red bike. It's it's super dumb <laughs> on it's super dumb on a gravel bike. It's like rocky the square edges everywhere like it's totally silly but it's this one section that is probably including including that short little climb and the descent it's what six minutes if that um but the rest of that route is pretty tame um so it's like okay do i want to have a setup where i can just charge through that with you know bigger tires and tire inserts and a dropper post and then be able to have super have a ton of fun going through that section and then carry that weight and like that that extra I guess slow tires and the dropper and everything. So, and then deal with all that for the rest of the ride, or do I want to go fast everywhere else and then kind of just like tiptoe my way through there? Right. I guess that's sort of just the choice that you have to make, right? Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, that's, I guess that's where I am. I lean on the side of I would rather like tiptoe my way through something and then have a fast bike the rest of the way. And maybe that's because I'm from a mountain bike background. So, like going riding a bike that's not very great on rocky stuff doesn't scare me, I guess. But like, I would rather have the faster, like more road-oriented bike for the 98% of the rest of the bike ride. Fair enough. All right. Well, I think it's safe to assume here that it's probably situation dependent and 
I guess, just rider preference as far as the the dropper post and suspension post seat post uh, and the suspension seat post thing. Let us know what you think in the comments. I'd be curious to hear from more of you what your thoughts are on this because clearly this is not a one size fits all kind of thing. All right, Zach, yep. I want to move on to our third discussion topic here that I know you are What's hugely, hugely a fan of. Oh yeah, huge. So uh, Meta the parent company of Facebook. So they recently teased their vision of what they think indoor cycling might look like in the near future. So not surprisingly, it involves virtual reality headsets to provide users with, I guess, what they conceive to be a more realistic perspective than what you'd normally get by just sort of staring at Zwift on your TV or on computer. And in the context of online racing, this sort of setup would theoretically provide virtual race viewers the opportunity to see things from a rider's perspective in the race, sort of like how you can choose different views in Zwift uh, or, for, or like you know any number of driving simulators that are out there. So Meta also teased this idea of augmented reality or AR glasses that people would wear while riding outdoors. Um, now, this is hardly a new idea. There have been a, a whole bunch of different options for this sort of thing from companies like you know, Recon, Solos, Everysight, and whatever to, to varying degrees of success or, or failure. Um, I've tried several of those AR glasses. I don't necessarily think they're for me, but this idea of VR indoor cycling is intriguing. So what do we think here? So, Zach, I mean, I know when I'm riding indoors, getting super sweaty, the first thing I want to do is put a big headset on and like have that on my face while I'm getting super sweaty going hard. So it seems pretty cool. Well, don't you just have to like have a, a virtual reality headset with like a little fan built inside? Yeah, get some fans and like wrap a towel around your, your eyes head. would be so just, cool. Yeah, yeah, love it. And then your neck will be really strong from holding up all that weight. Um, <laughs> uh, any speaking of, has anyone seen Ronan's neck training for his ultra endurance training? He's been doing. He's oh been, dear God, he's no, been, he's no, been, I have uh, not. He's been hanging he's weights doing like off what his F1, head. F1 drivers do. Yeah, that's what he's. That's where he got it from. But uh, anyway, good on him. But um. Yeah, no, that's the, the <laughs> Zach's issue with this is exactly the the major uh, the major block, I guess, for this this tech right now is that uh, I think Zwift when they were doing their their VR early, like their beta testing on it, um, I think DC Rainmaker might have reported on this that they were basically they're basically killing a headset after a single like hard session. Um, through sweat, so yeah, I'd say that's the tech's not just there yet. came up with that too. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so um, that that's definitely something to solve for. And as you say, like you you add fans, you add complexity, and then the weight goes up, and then you're hitting other issues. So I don't know. I think I think one day, yes, when we've got like cool glasses that let you, you know, that stop being translucent and become mm -hmm. virtual reality, and then you become into your virtual world and you can switch between real world and virtual world. I think that's fine. But given where the headset technology is now, I think no. I mean, it certainly seems like it's a bit of a pipe dream. And mm. I wonder how many years realistically it would be until something like that is more feasible from like a practicality standpoint. Um, because yeah, Dave, like I said, like I actually had, had just uh, looked at that video that Ray from DC, from DC Rainmaker had done from CES I guess it was just the most recent one or something, uh, where they were talking about how, um, yeah, where, where he was talking about how a single session could potentially kill a VR headset. Um, assuming they could tackle that issue, though, like let's just say you could have a virtual reality headset that would hold up to that sort of conditions. Would something like that make sense for indoor riding? And would it improve the experience at all? 
would it would it make in, indoor riding tolerable for me? Well, would would it make it tolerable? Would it would it make it potentially more interesting? Mean, the, the thing is whether or not, however, our personal views are on riding indoors, and I think it's pretty clear that like we would, the three of us would certainly rather ride outside. But the reality is there are an awful lot of people who ride Zwift who ride indoors. Yes, who not only do it but they enjoy it. Uh, yeah. And there are a lot of people who race indoors, and there are also a lot of people who are spectators for indoor bike racing now. Yep. Um, which I mean, I goes to show that on a lot of my opinions don't align with other a lot of other people. <laughs> yes, sure. Yeah. I mean, is that really the case? I like. I remember when COVID first started, and there was like a virtual Tour of Flanders. My whole friend group were all like, "Let's see what this is about." Like, I gave it a proper try, and like, it is just the most boring spectator sport you have ever seen in your life. Well, like, I was so I was just about to say. I don't have firm numbers on exactly how many people are actually watching these things or how many people are are you know, doing anything other than racing firsthand or like being active participants. But is this just sort of the thing that could make it at least a little bit more interesting from a viewer perspective? Like if you I mean, were able to kind of jump in and like sort of see how things are from this virtual Peloton? From a spectator point of view, I would say no. Like I... So at Road Worlds in, where was it, Harrogate? So pre-COVID, was it 19, something like that? Whatever, yeah, 2019. Zwift had a big thing, and they had like races every night. Then they'd get a bunch of old ex-pros up together, and they would virtually Zwift race, but they're all sitting next to each other. And that was awesome, like super fun to watch. But to me, that's no different than what roller racing was, where it's just like a fun event in a center, and you're kind of watching everyone suffer, and like everyone's drinking beer and having a good time. Like... I don't see how these goggles or VR or whatever would make the spectator point of view more. But like, can you make can you make that same argument about people logging into Twitch and watching people playing like Halo and stuff? Because yeah, that I is also a, don't understand that. I love video games, but, and I but just, that's the thing like people make so much money off of it, and I just don't well, understand it at people all. People make so much money off of it, and the thing is, it is massive. There's a massive audience for that, and that certainly blows my mind but again i i also can't deny that there is a huge contingent of people who are doing that so like i said for as much as it's not necessarily as much as this sort of thing isn't necessarily in our wheelhouses as far as what I mean, we think like i guess doing, it's out there in the traditional cycling world you ride indoors because it's convenient and as a workout right. this seems like they're trying to take that and make it less of a workout and kind of make it fun is like make it more of a video game. You have this headset and you're like seeing things. It's just like more immersive experience, less of a, I'm in my basement on my trainer pedaling really hard. And I guess it also has to be pointed out that it is obviously in Meta's interest to promote something like this because, I mean, the reason why it's Meta now and not Facebook is because Facebook, well, Meta is actively trying to promote this idea of this whole metaverse about having your whole virtual life and your virtual existence and kind of just living in this sort of internet world. Um, so it is in their interest to have something like this. And there's certainly been speculation that, that, that meta might even be uh, like talking about buying Zwift and like kind of immersing or just kind of become having that be even more of a virtual reality world. Um, so there is some sort some level of self-serving here. Um, but that being said, if I were a heavy duty Zwift user, um, for the same reason that people like using Zwift on like, you know, big screen TVs and that sort of thing, it kind of like theoretically provides a quote unquote more immersive experience so that it, it 
feels a little less like you're riding indoors. I do have to wonder if, like I said, if they were to figure out this headset issue with the the sweat and the, that that sort of corrosive environment, the water and everything, um, if they were to figure that out, I I kind of wonder if it could potentially take off. I mean, yeah. To me, it's just like you're trying to make the act of riding indoors less shitty, whether it's Zwift or like all of these. Like it used to even before Zwift, you had a trainer and you were either doing a workout that your coach gave you, which was awful, or you had these videos that would have some dude yelling at you with <laughs> what gear you should be in. Yes, And definitely. like you're doing that and the, it's the distracting Chris, you. The Chris Carmichael train ride? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like that. And you're like dudes yelling at you, telling you what gear to do. And you're like, it's a distraction from the shittiness that is riding indoors and it makes the time pass faster. So right. that's what like, to me, what all of these things are, whether it's virtual racing or Zwift or like headsets, like it's just a distraction from what you're actually doing, like to make the time yeah. pass by faster. Yeah. Like, I mean, you're talking about like the world connected on the internet and all this, like, that's why I love where I live. Like I can go ride my bike in the mountains and have no cell phone reception and just like <laughs> be disconnected and just enjoy being out on my bicycle with the wind in my hair and like just yeah right not have to worry about emails or right text messages or updates or whatever don't worry right. elon but musk again, will fix that for you zach those emails will be able to get you yeah, wherever yeah. you are <laughs> exactly Starlink everywhere yeah event uh, so yeah zach i certainly agree with you and Again, I always have to come back to the fact that as much as we are fortunate enough to be able to kind of just get out there and just disappear for a while, not everyone is in that situation. So yeah, I guess this is another one. I would be curious to hear from listeners in the comments as far as whether this sort of thing would be appealing or would it make any sense to you? Because uh, whether we particularly think it makes sense or not, I think it's pretty obvious that it's probably coming in one way or another. So I guess we'll evaluate it when it comes about and see how quickly we can kill a headset. <laughs> or maybe we'll ask Ronan to do that one. We'll ask Ronan. Sure, Ronan will volunteer. Ronan will do it. All right. What they just need to do is um, they just need to seal those headsets really well and then use like a solid polymer around the headsets <laughs> and then <laughs> not run the cables through those headsets, which would then get uh, corroded. Um, and then, this, yeah, this we is, can... Okay, sorry. What are their cables for? It's all wireless <laughs> technology. Dave, Dave, I would, I will have to say, you are normally very much on point with the puns, and this sorry. this attempt at a sort of virtual slash physical pun didn't, thing didn't with the VR headset and the headsets on your bike. I'm not saying it worked. Can't say it worked this time. Ah, uh, well, a rare miss for you. Anyway, anyway, all right. Let's move on from the all. discussion topics. And let's get on to something more fun. Let's go ahead and dive into Ask a Mechanic because we've got a whole bunch of questions to work through here and we're running long. All right, as always, our Ask a Mechanic questions come from our Velo Club members. If you haven't already joined, please consider doing so. Uh, our first question comes from Benjamin Battison. Benjamin has a Domani SLR disc road bike, which has Bontrager AOLIS 5 TLR carbon clincher wheels on it. He said he loves the versatility of the bike, although until now he's mostly been using it for the road. Uh, but given that that bike is not his number one road bike anymore, I'm curious what he's gotten, uh, but that's not his number one road bike anymore and he's gravel curious. So he's thinking about putting some faster rolling 30 mil tires on it to try and do some 
off-tarmac riding, he says. He says, think Strade Bianchi, but not quite Paris-Roubaix. So in that way, he says he doesn't need to, he, he doesn't feel the need to buy a proper gravel bike. Uh, his issue, however, he's trying to run Challenge Strade Bianchi tires, 30 mil, uh, with Challenge latex tubes. He doesn't want to pinch the tube and clearly doesn't, clearly doesn't want to damage his rim. He's having a hard time getting those tires on. He's wondering, should he just bail on this combo and go with a more compatible combo for his wheels? Or do we have some tips on how we can get those tires on? Those tires are notoriously difficult. Yeah, because they like to lay, well, they come flat and they like to almost be inside out. So if he's not already, I would put air in the tube to keep it some shape so that you're least less likely to pinch flat it. Especially with latex, it's very tricky. Yeah, but it's those tires in particular, they're much easier 30 mil tires to install. And and say. Bontrager rims are, can also be a little bit tight as well. Um, yeah, it depends say. if he... Because yeah. he could have like the plastic rim strip for tubeless in that. Mm. So if he has that, then that's going to make it really tight. Gotta get so rid you could take that out and put normal, yeah. put normal rim tape yep. in. Good point. That would help quite a lot, actually, if he's yeah. going to be running tubes Massive. in there. Because you definitely don't need that rim strip in there if you're going to run inner tubes. Yeah. But um, mainly those tires, like yeah. they just want to be inside out and flat and not round like a, a tire uh another thing that could help with those with that particular setup uh and this would assume benjamin has the time to do this but you could install those tires with a more conventional butyl tube for now and just pump them up real high and just stretch them out for a little bit um those tires do tend to kind of kind of settle in after a while especially with some pressure in there so that's another yeah. option is to just run a butyl tube for a little while uh Another thing that you could do too is instead of running a latex tube, you could also run a polyurethane tube. Um, those offer a lot of the benefits of latex, but aren't quite as finicky. Um, so that's another option as well. So mm. uh, if you're having a really, really hard time with those tires, then maybe you want to switch to something else. But having run those particular tires myself personally, it's a really good tire. It rides fantastically. Grip is great. Ride quality and the you know, comfort and all that. Um, I would say... Put in, put in the sweat and get those things set up because it is, it is a fantastic tire to ride. Yep. On that, on that note of stretching out tires, that's actually a, a tip I'd heard from someone at Maxis before, which is uh, if you ever get the chance to and you've got the time to do it, uh, you can basically set up any, any tire you wish to run with a tube, set it to maximum pressure for 24 hours, and you'll basically then uh, end up getting the maximum volume out of that tire. Um, whereas if you don't do that, eventually the tire will stretch, but, uh, but this way it just gets you up to the, the maximum intended volume of the tire pretty quickly and, and gets rid of that stretch early on. So not a bad Ooh, tip for, uh, tip. yeah, not a bad tip for anyone. Okay. All right. Uh, next question here comes from John McAllister. How important are the pad retaining clips on the bolt for SRAM hydraulic calipers? Uh, and to be clear, I think he's asking about the little clip that goes onto the pad retaining bolt. Yeah, Dave, thoughts? Clip. Uh, it's just a tiny little circle clip. It's it's a it's a secondary safety device in case your brake pad retaining bolt rattles loose uh, and you end up losing that. It it basically just means that uh, with that clip in place, you can't actually lose that bolt. It could it could come loose, but it wouldn't drop the pads out. So uh, yeah, it's. If you're confident that you've got a little bit of Loctite and that you've torqued that bolt correctly and that it couldn't rattle loose, then it's not necessary. But it's it's just uh, it's a failsafe. So, right, yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, I t I'm glad you mentioned the Loctite thing because 
I actually like to use just a tiny little dab of blue Loctite on those mm -hmm. bolts, whether it be Shimano or SRAM or whoever. Um, and I like to install them just so like they're kind of snug, but not necessarily super tight because at that point it's the Loctite yeah. that keeps them from rattling, rattling loose, not the tightness. Um, yeah. and then you oftentimes don't have to deal with, you know, a, a head breaking off or like the little flathead aluminum, uh, screws that Shimano uses on their higher end stuff, rounding off that sort of thing. So I like to use just a little bit of Loctite. And then, like you said, that little retaining clip is just sort of extra. Um, but officially I'm going to say that you absolutely must run them because I think probably our lawyers would, lawyers would yell at us. Anyway, all right. I think that question is settled for the most part. Next one, Zach, I want to hear your your thoughts on this one in particular. This one comes from Jason Fagar. Fagar? Jason, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. It's F-A-G-A-R. Anyway, Jason is wondering, what's the best way to clean a rim before applying rim tape? Uh, he said he knows that Muckoff sells some specific cleaners, but he's wondering if soap and water or even a degreaser should be fine to get old tape residue off. Uh, I'm assuming tubeless serum tape and to get it to stick. So I usually just use like some rubbing alcohol on a rag and just clean it up and then the tape sticks really well usually. Um, the problem is usually you get like as tape gets old it gets pushed off and you get sealant all over the inside of your rim and you just really have to just clean that off to get the new tape to stick. Save? So, uh, yeah. I use, I use rubbing alcohol as well. Otherwise uh, a degreaser or even brake cleaner is not bad. Like a disc brake cleaner can be quite good uh, which is a little bit more heavy hitting than uh, yeah, than your rubbing alcohol. Um, but then yeah, generally what I'd like to do before I do the triple tape, I will just go over with a clean rag and that rubbing alcohol just to make sure it's, um, there's no like, yeah, chemical residue left. Right. I, mean, I guess if it's really bad, like if you had some crappy tape that just left a ton of residue on, you could even use acetone, which like you used to use that on carbon rims for tubulars so that there'd be no reason to not use that. Something pretty aggressive. Yeah. But that's like, if it was really bad, um, if it wasn't necessarily residue that you're trying to clean off, but like I've seen some wheels that like literally the entire inside of the rim is full of sealant that I've also had to wash off side and use a hose and soap and like really bad, but that's pretty rare. Eek. Yeah. <laughs> and all those, and all the spoke nipples are probably yep, corroded and about to break great up shape. Hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Jason, that's our suggestion there. So hopefully that helps. Uh, next question comes from Rob Stein, who has asked questions before. Why hasn't someone come out with a tubeless Schrader valve? It'd require a new industry standard, which bike companies already love. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, it would require a new industry standard for road where we drill bigger holes and rims, but surely the larger diameter valve would be an instant benefit. No? So no more, no more clogged valves. So what am I missing here? Um, just to back up, so Presta valves did become popular because road rims were super narrow for a while and people just didn't want to drill really big holes. Um, I mean, I would say there actually is some merit to this idea, particularly as road rims have gotten really wide. Um, I mean, there are tubeless straighter valves already. Uh, I, I run them in my kid's bike, actually. So, um, mm. so they are a thing already. As far as why people don't run them, I honestly don't know. My guess is probably just tradition. Yep. I feel like as a whole, the bike industry is really bad at being all on one standard. And the fact that the like entire bike industry is okay with Presta valve, I'm fully fine with that. Should so we there's not like with that? that I don't not go to Air Up a tire and I'm like, which one of the eight valves is this? <laughs> like which head do I need? Like it's Dunlop. all we have all all accepted Presta valve to be the one, and I'm okay with that. Like on high if end we bikes. wanted to go yeah. straighter, yeah, on high end bikes. Yeah. If we wanted to go straighter or some variation of that, I think yes, it would make sense in a lot of cases, particularly like with sealant getting clogged and stuff, but 
the like mass adoption of that, it would just take forever and it would be not great. Yeah. I mean, so in, in, sorry, I was just going to say, you're talking about ahead. a different hole size, right? Which is what James said. So you basically, yep. Yep. it would basically take a rim manufacturer or a wheel manufacturer to say, you know what? We're just going to use Schrader and screw screw you and your availability of tubeless valves. We're just going to go with this and you have three options for a tubeless valve on the market at the moment and others will follow but we just believe in this enough. And the reality is, is that it's just not a big enough issue to, to have that fight. No, you know, TT Swiss isn't going to all of a sudden drill a larger hole that isn't backwards compatible with Presta and then have that fight with everyone over Schrader being better because it's just not, there's just not enough people complaining about this as an issue. Right. And I am definitely testing my memory here, but um, if I remember correctly, I think the first generation Mavic Crossmax wheels actually were drilled for Schrader. And I think if I remember like correctly- the rim brake ones? The what? Rim brake ones? Yeah. The very, very first ones that had like the super, super box section profile. I feel like those were actually but drilled those, for like Schrader. But the very first ones with like round steel spokes. I'm trying to remember. Those, th- that very first generation one- uh, because I had the, no, those, those the first are, gen with the aluminum spokes with like the ceramic brake track and stuff, and those were Presta for sure. Hmm. I'm gonna have to te- I'm gonna have to check this one because I remember that was I remember back in the days, back in my shop days, that was a a uh, a prime source of Schrader to Presta reducer little grommets for me. Because <laughs> yeah. I feel like that rim came drilled Schrader. I will have to check that and see if yeah, I can find I vaguely a, think, a Mavic history. I really think there was something there, even if it was designed for Presta, there might have been some sort of shim used to like protect the, the yeah. tube or something. Yeah. Um, so no, th- these were these were the non-tubeless cross maxes that used steel spokes and basically used like a version of their MX601 hub. Um, there were steel, there were definitely steel spokes. They were ceramic sidewalls and they were basically like a perfectly rectangular rim profile. I don't remember. It's been so long. That's, because- That's like just before me too. So I don't really. I was gonna say I'm also like I'm also like 15 years older than you, Zach. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm. Yeah, this was like my junior race days. So yeah. I'm trying to remember like what was what other people had that was really cool. I was that I was aspiring to have to. Yeah, uh, you're both reminding me of the very early days of tubeless conversions with the stands rubber rim strips, where the recommendation oh, yes. was to Did drill those. Was to drill out the the internal wall of your rim to make the the rim strips sit yep. flatter. Uh, I once accidentally went too far with the drill bit and then oh, no. <laughs> and then made my rim straighter compatible. So yeah, wah, wah. I was way ahead. <laughs> okay. Mm. All right. Anyway, so to recap, Rob, there's no functional reason why that shouldn't be a thing, but it's just not. And that, let's maybe not poke that bear. Uh, next question comes from D.D. Edgerton Warburton. Uh, is there a particular spec I should be looking for in a stem faceplate? Didi's looking to remove a stem, uh, stem-based stem giant computer mount which uses extra-long bolts and wants to use standard-length bolts to replace them. Um, I'm not aware of a specific spec that you would look for, and I think that might actually vary quite a bit between, between bike brands. Um, but for this particular case, I would actually recommend trying to find a a, a bigger and or better giant giant dealer near you because my guess would be there have been several of those uh, computer mounts installed at the shop and that shop probably has some of those leftover bolts on hand. I would also say like, if, I'm not familiar with this exact 
computer mount and stem, but I'm imagining it from other ones that are similar. Like you use the bottom bolts are longer to hold the computer mount and the top bolts are just normal bolts. So I would take the top bolt out, take that to your local hardware store and have them match it up with, because it's just going to be a standard metric bolt. So I'd have them match that with another high quality stainless bolt of the same dimensions. Yeah. The only issue sometimes is that sometimes those stem faceplate bolts, um, in rare cases, sometimes they're kind of beveled on the on, on the under, underside of the head. Uh, and sometimes the head is just like a smaller diameter than what you'd normally find in just a regular industrial M5 bolt. Um, so I would try a shop first, uh, ideally a, like I said, a bigger and or better giant uh, dealer, and then go from there. Like So yeah, like Zach, what Zach said is totally correct. It is a normal metric bolt. It's Most a, of the time. Almost always. It's almost always an M5 with a 0.8 mil uh, thread pitch. Um, so that shouldn't be too hard to find, but yeah, I would try a giant shop first and just see if you can match those up. If anything else, just for visually, it would be nice to have four matching bolts. Um, all right, moving on, uh, Raymond Schwarte having an issue with a compression plug here in a whiskey fork with a whiskey compression plug and a King headset. Raymond says he's having a heck of a time stopping the compression plug from pulling up when trying to tighten the headset. He's greased the internals of the plug and, and applied carbon paste to the outside of the plug has the stem on, but it's not tight when tightening up the compression plug, and he's at the manufacturer's 8 newton meter max, and it's still creeping up. Uh, we've also confirmed with Raymond that uh, he's running the proper amount of space between the top of the steering tube and the top of the stem, so that shouldn't be an issue as well. It sounds like this thing just isn't really fitting very well in the inside of the steer, which is kind of a bummer considering it's a whiskey plug and a whiskey fork. What do we think here? I mean, uh, my first thing would have been to grease all the surfaces on the inside of the plug, so the wedges and the threads, but it sounded like already done you did that because usually that's a they like kind of bind against themselves and it's tighter like it feels tighter than it actually is um but seemingly he's done all the things i would my next step would be to try a different plug yeah different plug um those plugs are made pretty cheaply like not i'm not talking about whiskey i'm talking about the the plugs that they almost all fork brands uh acquire to then supply with their forks uh, and I've had it before where the the threads in them is done so roughly that it's what Zach says. It's like you're, you've got such a high running torque in that that your torque wrench might actually say 8 newton meters and it's clicking at 8 newton meters, but the tension on that is much... The effective tension on that is much lower and that all that torque is actually just going into like these uh, poorly fitting threads, basically. So I would... Yeah, first point of call would basically be a different plug because there's just some that are crummy. Yeah, and I like ones that are particularly tall too, which not only reinforce more of the steer tube, but also have more surface area for the plug to bite into the the inside of the steer tube. And those are which I think the whiskey ones are pretty tall though. I'm trying to remember. Hmm, maybe, um, but I know like Pro has been one that I've always been pretty happy with. They make one that's 50 mils tall. Um, there are a couple of other ones out there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I would say that a different plug would be the best way to go and. For that, you may want to go to a shop and actually physically try some different plugs in that fork to see which one offers the closest fit to the inner diameter of that steer tube. Yeah. I mean, too, if it is something like the threads are bad and they're kind of binding, like you could also try bumping the torque up on it a little bit to see if like it's over the measured torque, but it's not as tight as they want it to be, right? So you could try going, say, to 9 or 10 and see if, if it holds and doesn't come up. And doesn't blow out the steer tube? Yeah. Well, yes. The stem should also like <laughs> it all pressures against each other. I'm mm. not telling people to like crank on it, but I'm just saying like if the threads are binding and it's it feels tighter than it actually is, then 
I could bump it up a little bit. Mm. All right. Well, let's go. Let's do one more question here, and then we will wrap up for the day. Uh, this one comes from Jace Vanderpruitt. Uh, Jace recently obtained a specialized Athos frame. Hi, He's Jace. Looking at a nice. I saw that frame. It's a summer. lovely bike. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, he's looking for a nice wheel set to put on it because he he bought one of the lower end builds with the the rival axis setup. It comes with some fairly cheap wheels. Uh, Jace is trying to maintain the lightness of the bike, but also achieve a bit of an aero advantage in the wheels for the flat roads, which he says is more of his weakness. Uh, he says the Zip 303 Firecrest seems to take a lot of boxes. They're light, aero wide, seemingly around 2,500 Australian. Positive reviews. He said, however, he's been riding long enough to feel like the Zip's recommended pressures are a bit out there for him. He's not entirely sold on the whole hookless idea either. He also never really had any intention to run tubeless on a road bike. He's on the verge of giving it a go, but would like to consider some other options. He says he intends to run 28 to 30 mil tires and doesn't really have any intentions of taking the bike off-road. Thoughts? So he wants carbon wheels that are light and arrow, but hooked. And or to not be like locked into and, tubeless. And compatible with 28, 30 mil tires. See, this is... I feel like this is something that I would do as well because having ridden that bike and knowing what sort of tire clearance that thing has, I think it officially clears like a 32. Yeah. Um, I really, really like 28 mil tires on a particularly wide rim, both internal and external, because then at that point you get the the benefits of the ride quality and the extra air volume. And then you also have uh, that aero feature when uh, a 28 mil tire mounted on like a 25 mil internal rim would bump out to about 30 and a half, 31 typically. And if you have a carbon rim that has that sort of external dimension, then you've got a really good aero profile too. Um, I'm not really sure what carbon brands are offered in Australia. Maybe Dave, maybe you can help out with this one, but I feel like, I feel like there are quite a number of brands that offer aero shaped carbon rims hooked uh, to you know, provide a little bit more flexibility in the tire choice, since uh, Jay says he's not entirely sold on the hookless thing or tubeless for that matter. Um, but I personally would like to go with something that's definitely on the wider end for internal and external. I mean, he's already on a specialized. I would go Roval. Like they have the Alpinist or the Rapide. They're both hooked. They have different levels, like tiers of them for how much money you want to spend. They all come with DT hubs. You can't go wrong there. Or, or but, even like the the Terra. Um, yeah, like the gravel the, wheels. The, yeah. the Terra wheels are less aero, but they're a little bit less aero, but they are quite wide. Um, and if they're they're like thirty five mils deep or something like that. So yeah. they're like nominally aero profiled. You get a little bit of benefit, um, but you'd be able to run a big fat tire on that. It is hooked. You'd have that security if you don't really want to worry about the whole hookless thing. You don't want to deal with that. And if you want to run kind of more traditional pressures, you can do all that. I think most of the DT wheels are all hooked as well. Um, like most. I feel like Bontrager are all hooked. Yep. Shimano are all hooked. Yep. I'm Maybe Shimano wouldn't work with SRAM, but I'm not opposed to hookless. I just don't necessarily think it belongs when we're talking 25, 28, or even 30 mil tires. I think there's significant limitations associated with technology. And I think if you follow like the pressure guidelines from from the zip calculator, which probably run a little bit low, if anything, uh, you're fine. Like, I think it's a safe system as long as you're sticking below that 72 PSI, but I think it's limiting. And I don't know if I personally would run. I mean, I have run. I don't know if I'd personally buy or, or choose as a first choice to run a 25 mil internal width rim with a 28 mil tire. I kind of, to me, I, I feel like a 32 mil tire is sort of like the, the entry point to that rim width. Uh, and that's, that's just in my head. I know, I know a 28 mil tire works on that 25 mil rim. 
but it just for me it kind of squares it off a little bit and makes it less you know it stops the tie from being such a nice rounded profile uh so yeah for so in jace's case given he wants to run 28s and 30s i'd probably be saying like maybe a 23 mil internal with room would be the widest i would personally recommend if i was in his shoes and then the roval and shimano and campagnolo and all of those are like closer to 21 mil internal width and i think that's still perfectly fine i think i would say alternatively if you didn't want to go out and buy new wheels you could just like i have rode an ethos for a while and i had 32s on it and that was lovely and i was primarily riding it on paved roads so like you could before you get rid of these wheels and have to buy a new set you could try some like nice not like gravelly road tires but like high quality road tires and a 32 on these and see how that feels like it still feels fast and fun right like but as far bike. as the, the whole aero benefit that he's looking for like he the, the wheels that come on that bike are certainly not very deep and definitely not very wide yeah the that comes with like some alloy dts or something uh yeah they're like a it's like an oem dt setup yeah but like so if he already has 303s like or he's looking at them anyway oh i i thought it said that he had them already no, it's, sorry. it's sort of like one of the things that's kind of close to the top of his list at the moment ah, yes sorry i misunderstood that then uh, anyway i mean having having ridden that 303 firecrest it's a it, it is a really good wheel um but yeah if you are considering running it tubed and if you're not super down with the, the hookless thing then that unfortunately kind of takes those off the list but um but either way i would consider going with something pretty pretty wide and i think if you match up the outer rim profile with what the total width of that tire will likely end up being and then you can probably save a fair bit of weight over that stock wheel set because they're pretty heavy um you still get quite a bit of aero benefit you'd have a, a lot of tire volume and i think there'd be a, a actually like a lovely ride quality at that point like you kind of nail everything hmm all right well either way jace congratulations on your new ethos it's a lovely lovely riding bike um let us know what you ended up with so we're going to go ahead and wrap up our show today because uh well we didn't get through quite all of our asking mechanic questions but we can save some for next time. Um, that'll do it for this week's Nerd Alert podcast. Thanks as always for listening. If you got any questions or comments, please go ahead. Please go ahead and leave them in the comment section of the written post on CyclingTips.com for this episode. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review on iTunes. But before we go, we'd like to give a shout out to this week's unofficial and unpaid sponsor, the Oliman Center of Biomimetic Dentistry. <laughs> so just to provide some clarifications, we don't run any ads on Nerd Alert. Certainly no paid ads anyway. But this is our show. So we've decided that we're going to run ads that have been submitted by Velo Club sponsors that have, you know, these are their businesses or businesses that they're associated with. And well, it's our show. So we're going to do what we want. I feel like we should do these very first thing to like really throw new listeners off. Uh, but then like people <laughs> might just be really, really confused. Anyway, Biomimetic Dentistry is a branch of restorative dentistry that uses treatments to maintain and save the natural tooth structure using materials that mimic your natural teeth. Biomimetic dentists actively work to avoid damaging the tooth structure with traditional restorative techniques, and the Allman Center seeks to educate practitioners in these more advanced methods use a using a variety of training courses, lectures, seminars, and hands-on sessions. If you're, if you're a practicing dentist that's looking to up your game, head over to www.allmancenter.com. That's A-L-L-E-M-A-N center.com. Start heading down the road to saving more teeth, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. That's all we got for real this time now. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Yes. <laughs>